Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And Yolando is giving me a hard time about not being close enough to my mic, which is making me very um, awkward and self-conscious. So that's where I am. You're anxious and self-conscious. Awkward. Awkward. Awkward, awkward, awkward. and self-conscious. I'm like awkward kissing the microphone, which is never something that I usually have to do. So I don't understand why I have to do it today. Because you have lots of good things to say and we want the oh, audio to be good. See? see? Look what Boom. you did there. Boom. Now I don't can't even. Feel I do. I feel small. I feel small. Mm. Thank you. You've reduced me. Yes. Uh, so what, as you've just taken a sip of coffee, what is astonishing you? Well, on Sunday, I did something I've never, ever, ever, ever done oh, yeah. before, um, and we talked about this on the run. Um, after the sermon on Sunday, we had a Q&R question and response time. Uh, we were very clear about uh, not calling it a question and answer time, because I didn't want to set myself up to be the, you know, the, the Bible theology answer person, but it truly was a question and response time, and just astonished by the level of engagement. Um, I asked one elder to be prepared, you know, to ask a question just in case there was total silence in the room. We let the congregation know that we were going to do this before, um, before the sermon time, and so people had time to, um, you know, formulate questions, and the energy was high. I think there were uh, 10 questions or so. Um, I, I thought maybe that, that time might last you know, a few minutes, it went 15 or more. We could have gone longer. I had to uh, end the time, uh, you know, with a couple of more people still wanting to ask questions because we, I mean, we really could have gone on and on. And the great thing about it, one, just the level of engagement. And so often I feel, you know, on Sunday mornings, I'm talking, I'm talking, it's a monologue, and people leave and I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what they are taking away from, from the sermon. And in real time, having people talk back and having people reflect upon the sermon, one, lets me know what they heard, how they're processing, what, what I didn't say that um, they were listening for, uh, what they heard <laughs> that I didn't say in the sermon, um, and also in real time, I think the Holy Spirit is also um, deepening our, our including me, our experience of the word in that moment, because there were some questions asked that, I mean, immediately I had a response. And while I was talking, I was thinking, you know, if I had thought about this while I was preparing, I would have said this in the sermon. For example, uh, the very first question that was asked was, um, um, by the way, the, the text was Mark chapter 13. Jesus is telling his disciples about his second coming at the end of the age. And um, he ends that particular part of scripture by saying, stay awake, keep awake, keep watch. You don't know when the end is coming. You don't know when I'm returning, right? And someone asked, well, how, how do you do that? How do you stay awake? And what immediately came to mind was, you know, the only people that I know who have that kind of constant attentiveness are people who are in love. Like, remember when mm. you were a teenager and you would stay up all night on the phone talking about nothing. You would listen to the other person breathe over the phone. You would live in anticipation of the next time you saw him or her. You would, you know, you would, you know, uh, you would just write their name for the joy of writing their name. Your thoughts were, were about anticipating the next time you were in their presence. Like, so... I think what we're, we're asked to do in this season and in the Christian life is to cultivate our love for Jesus so that we long for his appearing. And I gave the answer. I thought, <laughs> I w if I thought of that question while preparing, I would have said something like that. But it, it was a real holy spirit-led time that I could not have manufactured in the monologue of preaching. I mean, I do think that, and we, we talk about this a lot, maybe not on the podcast, but off of it about, you know, the, the preaching 
preaching really is a communal, I mean, it's not an essay. And so even when there's no um, dialogue explicit at the end of the sermon, like the sermon is created out of the dialogues that you have, the conversations that are happening in the community that, um, so I think that's really, I mean, that's just really powerful. I mean, that's what we want is not for people to know something different, but people to be changed by consuming the word and like grow and be reshaped and reformed by it. So yeah, that's, we do um, sermon talkbacks a lot at the Grove or fairly often, but the, they're the whole second hour, but sort of the same idea of like, what are the questions and like, how do we engage around this um, in a deeper way? And we were saying on the run that, um, and part of a different conversation that just the retraining that I think you and I need to do, which has a lot to do with how we were prepared to preach is just to sort of always be thinking about the, that everybody who's who's I think deeply engaged like coming to be transformed and not to be affirmed everyone who is coming seeking the Lord and seeking to come alive in Christ that's always going to be their question is well how well now what like what should I do what should we you know what should I do and so I think to to know that and like always when we think about how do I land the plane that should always be like this is what putting the landing gear looks like. Putting the landing gear down looks like knowing people want to know now what, so what. And even if folks say, well, that's the wrong answer, at least having an answer helps form the community to be not just hearers, but doers of the word. Um, but I think we were trained well in really valuable institutions to just know what the correct meaning of the text is and tell it to people instead of that the point, which is not to know but to become. And so that's, uh, yeah, anyway, that's, that's really well, great. And when you read the Gospels, there are times when Jesus would teach his disciples and then later on they would ask questions like tell us more we don't understand or they would they would say something in conversation with Jesus or do something which clearly demonstrated their misunderstanding of what he was teaching I'm sorry you probably don't want me crunching ice on the podcast that's probably not helpful and I would also say neither you nor I are understanding ourselves or representing ourselves to be the Jesus figure in this. Absolutely not. But, um, but again, to but the understand point about engaging, a conversation, yeah. yeah, an ongoing yeah. conversation that it's not, you know, sermon monologue, amen, everybody leave, but how can we yeah. uh, develop an ongoing conversation? And there's a vulnerability in that, that I think is helpful. I mean, just to sort of challenge and disrupt this idea that, you know, the, the sage on the stage, the prophet on the mountain, like yeah. that, no, we are people who are playing a role, but we are just, we are members of the community. Um, and so engaging with the community in, in a, in a non-hierarchical way is really healthy. Um, and also hard. So yes. hat well, tip I to think you. we're going to experiment with doing that sort of thing once a month and um, um because i mean if you do it every week it becomes another just ritual, a program yeah. programmed ritual that yeah. can lose yeah although maybe not once a month on communion sunday friend what were i you know thinking? i don't know what i was thinking yeah i preached a full-length sermon and we had communion and that went longer than expected so um I yeah, I think our whole service was I like think, an hour, funny. hour 40 minutes. We're like both uh, preaching, like our Advent themes, the beginning is near, mine is awake, the beginning, well, not mine, the groves is awake, the beginning is near, yours is the beginning of zero, but I can imagine people sitting in the congregation being like, great, I'm glad the beginning is near, but where is the ending? Where is the end <laughs> of this sermon? Um, maybe I'm just channeling my husband because this is what I get every Sunday, but yeah. So what's astonishing you? Um, We had the cantata this past Sunday, which is a um, really cherished tradition at the Grove um, and has been before 
you know, it's a connecting tradition to when the Grove was Hickory Grove Presbyterian. So it's one Sunday during the year in Advent where it's, it is, um, the word is all in song. Um, and I just, I think it's important just to name and continue to marvel and not take for granted the beautiful things that we can count on. Um, and it's, it is just astonishing to me to be part of a community that can come together, can make something beautiful, can give it away, and then f- fade out again, right? Like it's not. Yeah, th- because your cantata is created by the Grove. It's not some prepackaged right. musical that you buy. No, um, our our friend Elizabeth Bridges, who's one of our music leaders, she you know, finds music. And then, um, I, I write some little pieces that go in between, but also the people who typically are worship leaders during the year, like that group expands. So there are some folks who just, it's part of their Advent discipline to come and be part of that moment. And, um, it's just really beautiful. And I, and I was thinking on Sunday, like there's just, I mean, it's just a very, particular Sunday and there's a level of anticipation and just I think savoring like you if you you know it won't be like this next Sunday um and I think there's just something so it points to something real and true all the time which just what a gift it is to gather every time we get together to worship and this is what we ultimately are doing like we I mean we were just having a conversation about how worship is disciple making and it, and it is but also worship is creating something beautiful for the sheer joy of creating it and it's and in some ways it's like you know one of those sand mandalas like once it's created it immediately ceases to exist and um it, it's and it is a thing and it's never supposed to be an end in itself it is a moment of connecting and seeing and rejoicing in the transcendent eternal goodness of God. Um, so it's just really countercultural in uh, anyway. So it was just, it, it was really beautiful. And I, I think everyone was, you know, astonished. There was just a lot of awe in the room and I'm just like really grateful. Um, and in a, in a season where things are so hard, um, when the trying to make sense of what's happening, especially in Gaza and Palestine and Israel is so difficult and heartbreaking. Um, I don't know. It, it is both really, there's just a real beautiful, uh, and, and, difficult tension but But not unlike the first century when you when you think about the brutality of rome and the birth of jesus read you know when you read the gospel of luke right we we have this tendency to think that when someone when the spirit moves someone um verbally that it is it is a speaking in tongues in luke when the spirit comes upon People start singing, <laughs> right? right? My soul doth magnify the Lord. And so the, the so much of the Gospel of Luke, especially those early chapters, read like a musical. In the midst of, of the brutality of Rome, people are singing, um, you know, Mary, the angels, about the coming of this Messiah. Well, and I also think, you know, one of the stories that should be part of our understanding of the incarnation and gets edited out is Matthew's account of the slaughter of the innocents. And it is, it's not just something that happened near chronologically or physically where Jesus was born. It is something that happened because Jesus was born. And I think, you know, the slaughter of children in Palestine is happening right now. And I think um, we, you know, there's a there's a lot of very bad 
theology that I, because it's so hard to see what's happening and mourn it and grieve it. And, and it's so hard to say this is wrong and there is another way. And it's so hard to say that because the pushback immediately is if you care about the people who are dying in Gaza, then you are pro Hamas and you are anti-Semitic. And so it's so easy just to think like, well, it's so tempting to look away or to keep silent. And then there is um, bad theology that I, I see people passing around this idea that, you know, because Abraham's first son was Ishmael and because Abraham and Sarah cast out Ishmael and Hagar, I, you know, that that was God's will, which it wasn't. God didn't tell them to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And that the prophecy given to Ish, to Abraham about his son Ishmael, that somehow the meaning of that is Ishmael is the father of all Muslims and Muslims are violent and awful. And it is their destiny to be killed by the children of Abraham and Isaac. And, and so it casts this real um, political um, fight, which is, which is being born most, most brutally by the most powerless people. (laughs) And it, and it puts this sort of pseudo divine sanction on it as if to say, well, what you're seeing with your eyes looks terrible, but here's some holy words and a theology that says it's really not wrong. It's really okay. And actually God is for it. And I think we, we just need to understand that if there is something that some kind of God talk that convinces you that the death of children is holy in God's sight, that is antichrist talk. That is not holy talk. That is blasphemous talk. And so I'm not saying that people need to be like Middle East historians or scholars, but the idea that like, oh, well, you're not allowed to say something unless you have a a degree, a political science degree, that's not true. And, And if there is a theology that allows you to have peace about what's happening, that's bad theology. Um, and I think sometimes because we make Christmas, we, we edit the brutal parts of the Christmas story out. We don't know. We don't know how to understand just what you're saying. Like it was always about joy and and proclamations of peace coming in and interrupting a very violent, hierarchical, destructive world. I know I've never done this before on this podcast, but I want to reference a biblical scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Um, perhaps you've heard of him. Um, one of the ways that he, when he talks about the birth of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the good news of Jesus, he'll often say, it is the beginning, the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament, fulfilling God's promise to renew creation. Mm-hmm. So, and if that is true, which I believe it is, then we have to interpret events like Israel and Hamas, that war, in light of what God is doing in Jesus, which is reconciling the world to God's self, renewing creation, and reconciling us to one another. And so Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the, on the Mount applies. One reason we can have a thinking that God is um, for the killing of those people is because we leave Jesus out of the equation. If you put Jesus and his teaching into your thinking about world events, then you have to pull back. If, If you follow the one who says, love your enemies, Right. Pray for them. Because turn the other cheek. Right. Because that's I also hear a lot of other Christians citing passages from Joshua and saying, like, oh no, God said slaughter X, Y, and Z people. And I 
I, I will okay. frankly confess. You have I don't, heard that it was said, right, right, but right. I say unto you. Right. I mean, I think the reality is that that's a, I, I deeply struggle with those conquest narratives in Joshua, particularly in context of the archaeological records that suggest that that didn't actually happen. But putting all that aside, we, we, Jesus is the word for us, and there's no place in the Gospels where Jesus condones any type of violence against anyone. And that is, in, in my read, the whole meaning of the cross, the whole stumbling block revelation of the cross is that evil cannot be destroyed by violence, um, that only self-giving love transform, has the power to transform evil. And I understand that that does not make sense in the culture. <laughs> in the culture, you're just a sucker and a fool and an idiot and you're naive and you're whatever. But that is the message of the Gospels in general, the entire New Testament, and, and particularly the message of Jesus on the cross saying, refusing to call down legions of angels to destroy the evildoers, refusing to use cosmic destructive power, and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's what the cross means. That's why it is foolishness and stumbling block to those who don't know Jesus. But to us, it's the cornerstone. So any way that you try to make sense of this without looking at it through the lens of the cross is is not, um, and, and it's really in to, to, in Jesus's name, to condone this kind of war making is to turn Jesus into the kind of son of God that Caesar was, right? Like Caesar said, I'm the son of God and I'm going to make peace through violence. I'm going to make peace through war. That's what Caesar, the false son of God said. And that's what every powerful national king or leader has always said. I alone have the power to wield violence with good to make good and everyone else who wields violence is bad but when i wield violence it's for goodness sake and jesus who is the true son of god refuses to do violence against people and if we are followers of jesus then then that's who we're following so again um a church like the grove having a cantata at a time when Israel is at war with Hamas also reminds me of the book of Revelation, right? So John looks and he sees this terrible suffering, violence on earth, and then he looks again, and in heaven, people are singing, right? right. People of every tribe, language, and nation standing before the throne, and they're singing, which reminds me of you know, the civil rights movement, you know, no guns, weapons, what do you do? You march and you sing. And I don't have adequate words here to, to express the, what, what I believe is the deeply spiritual power. And, and, and when I say that, I mean it in terms of both things we can't see and can see, or in the spiritual realm that we cannot see and in the material world that we can't see, I think a song has the power to move, to affect, to influence, to change things. Because in the church, songs are prayers set to music or even one might say prophetic words of declaration set to music. And so I just think there is a power uh, when, when believers sing. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, the premise, part of what, I mean, we, we talk about the civil rights movement as I understand it. One of the things that I think is so hard to talk about, and it is a scandal still to this day, is you know, part of the fundamental orienting principle of the civil rights movement was this idea that if people saw, they would stand with those who were marching for freedom and that if people saw what was happening, they would rise up against injustice and they would rise up to affirm the inherent sacred dignity of all people in this nation. And that was a, 
an audacious, some would say, like, and I'm not sure that many Americans fighting the culture wars now would make that bet about people on the other side. But it was a deeply, you know, prophetic proclamation of, of, I think, not just King, but others who really, on the one hand, could write the letter from a Birmingham jail, but also have hope in the you know that that the people on the other side were also humans who would recognize the good and stand against evil and i think you know part of that would would it join into the song and i think that's part of the danger of having people leaders on i mean everywhere um but but particularly in in hamas and in israel sort of saying like no the people that we are fighting against are inhuman and therefore they must be destroyed. And to be able to say like, no, actually we believe not just that we are human and worthy of Shalom, but that the people on the other side are human and worthy of Shalom. And so peace comes when we work so that everyone can sit in safety and contentment under their own vine and fig tree. And that's where peace comes in. And, um, and these bombs, these, I, I mean, I just, I think it's, it's also just really hard to understand that how interconnected all of this is and how Americans, no matter what, I mean, no matter what our will is, we are, we are on one side of this conflict and it is, the side of the government of Israel because we're funding everything that's happening there. And so it's not just, you know, there's some things that we can say like, well, this is, this is happening. This has nothing to do with me. I have an opinion, but it has nothing to do with me. But I think if people who are listening, who are Americans, it has something to do with us and people who are listening, who are Christians <laughs> preparing to celebrate the birth of a Jewish Palestinian child in Bethlehem, like this is, um, to, to say that this has got nothing to do with us is, um, is just tragically not true. So anyway, I'm sorry, I was talking about the cantata, but it's just all in my head. Like it's all sure. it's the same head that I wrote, <laughs> sadly. We are gonna make a, an abrupt transition to talk about something yeah. different. Something that we are, both think thinking about yes so do you want to set the scene go ahead oh well i'm not sure i can do it well so um there's been some um conversation a little bit of a uh tempest in a teapot um about christmas eve worship services in a community the national cathedral in washington dc which is an episcopalian cathedral which is called the National Cathedral, which would make you think that it was funded by the government, but it is not. Um, so it is um, a particular Episcopalian church in the Diocese of Washington, D.C. But it is, if you've watched The West Wing, it's the place where Jed Bartlett gave the, um, you know, screw you God speech in the um, nave. And it's just this, it's where lots of um, state funerals are held. It is this uh, beautiful, I mean, it's a cathedral. Um, and they have, and it is a, it is a archaeological, not archaeological, it's an architectural marvel, and it is a kind of a, um, a public site. So they have tours um, in that space during the week, and th- where they walk around and look at it, um, and charge admission for those tours during the week. Um, but it is also a worshiping community, and so several lots of people want to go to Christmas Eve worship in the National Cathedral because it is this beautiful place and people are sightseeing over the holidays um so there was a custom for many years where people would start lining up on the streets like up to 24 hours beforehand so that they would be in line so that they could get into the cathedral for the service on Christmas Eve and it seats like 4000 people right and the leaders of the community were like, gosh, we really don't like this. Like, it's cold. People are standing in line. They're uncomfortable. And sometimes people are standing in line all that time. And then 
they don't get a seat. Um, so we wonder if there's a better way. And so they started um, in saying like, hey, if you want to come, you need a, a ticket. And the tickets cost $7. And they've been doing this for several years. And um, this year, a, a couple weeks ago, they announced that the tickets were going on sale for $7 each. And when they did that, um, initially there was just a problem, like their website wasn't working. <laughs> and so people were saying like, hey, I'm trying and I can't get tickets. And then about two hours after the sales opened, some someone said, I think that this is terrible that you are charging money to worship. And then the online conversation really changed to say like, oh, this is terrible. This church is greedy. How can you charge money to proclaim the gospel? And then it became this huge, huge um, controversy. And then there, and I haven't seen this, but there were apparently a lot of attacks, verbal attacks on the integrity and faith of the leaders in the community. Like, oh, you all are just money grubbing, whatever, whatever. And then there was sort of a second wave of people being like, hey, um, churches have to pay actual money to, you know, put toilet paper in the stalls and light the place and how you know, like, they're just trying to get the money they need to, to do this. And then, um, you know, sort of this ongoing conversation of well, what, when is it or isn't it okay to charge money for, um, the practice of the sacred. And I have thoughts, but I will just also say that, it is very typical and common, and I remember being shocked when I was in when I was in seminary. I lived with a Jewish family, um, and like cooked dinner for them and cleaned their house and had board in um, Boston, which was great and love love them, love them still. And I did not know that um, it is very common in synagogues that there are just tickets to high holy day events, and it just it's not a, it's not a thing. It's just understood. Like, I think sometimes there's a sense of like, we know who's in our community. And so if we think that someone can't afford it, like I, the, the dad and the family that I lived with, you know, grew up pretty poor. And he was like, people would always just give us our tickets. So we didn't, it wasn't a financial hardship, but this idea of like, you mean the idea of newcomers coming is not the same in a Jewish community as it is in a Christian community, right? Like you're either are born Jewish or you're not. So there's not this sense of like, hey, anybody is welcome. There's more a sense of like, hey, this is our family, our spiritual family, and we've got bills to pay and we share the costs and this is what that looks like. So it, and, but I remember at the time just being like, what, how can you charge people to worship God? Like that feels really wrong to me. And I would just say like the idea that that feels wrong to me is because my whole concept is a Christian concept where, um, you know, anyone is welcome and every, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that people in synagogues are not welcoming. That's not what I'm suggesting, but the sense that anybody could be led by God to come and that, that is not the same, um, it's not the same cultural construct in a Jewish community where it, it's for the community outsiders. It's not that they're not welcome. It's just, why would you want to be here? Because you're not part of the Jewish community. Like, um, I feel like I'm dancing around what could be really misconstrued, but I, um, but I just want to point out that it's not unusual for religious communities to sell tickets, especially to high holy day, like Christmas Eve type services. So that I was just thinking, this is really interesting. And it leads to a lot of other interesting conversations and I know what I think about it, but you go first. Well, uh, when I first heard about it, I had an immediate negative reaction. Um, like you was like, what? no, you, you cannot sell tickets for a worship service. This isn't a performance of Handel's Messiah. Great, yes. It's a concert. Sell tickets. This is a worship service that has as its center the proclamation of the gospel and um, taking communion, receiving communion, right? Um, like you, you can't charge tickets uh, for this. And you know there is a history in the church, especially in the Episcopal Church and the Roman Catholic Church of, of, of selling religious goods and services, of, of 
and in this country of wealthy families buying pews and considering those pews in the sanctuary as their kind of personal property, right? Which, um, if you're poor, you can't do that. So my my initial reaction was negative, and then you know I realized th there is a cost to the church, um, security, crowd control, okay, and. I did learn upon further reading that the National Cathedral, as a worshiping community, over the past, I think, eight or so years, maybe a decade, has lost quite a bit of its membership. I think um, it was at 1,600. I think now it's maybe three or 400 a Sunday. So, yeah, it's a significant decrease in people, which I assume also means a decrease in financial resources. So I have some compassion for the leaders to want to both make entry on Christmas Eve organized and um, to reduce the financial cost uh, to the church because uh, they may be struggling. And yet still, I, I cannot find myself, um, I, I can't say yes to charging people to a worship service. I just can't do it. Yeah, I think the solution that they came up with, which is like, we're going to still do tickets because that just keeps everyone safe and keeps keeps it so that people don't have to I mean because having the ability to stand in line for 24 hours is a different kind of wealth and so you know makes it more evenly accessible to everyone so they are they're doing tickets and they are saying like hey there's a optional suggested donation of seven dollars like this would help us and so you can get your ticket for free or you can pay the seven dollars or you can pay more and that to me seems like a really um just wise and reasonable solution just telling people the truth about hey we you know you are welcome here and this is what would help us continue to make this space welcoming and accessible to everyone um and but I definitely I feel very strongly that um you can't you can't sell the gospel yeah you just yeah. can't sell the gospel and I think you know, when the maintenance of our institutions require us to sell the gospel, we need to let our institutions go. We're like, in trouble. And so I think that this is a, a problem with a lot of, you know, and a lot of, um, I, I think especially larger churches do a lot of things where like, oh, we're having Bible school, it's $25 a family, or oh, we're, you know, we're having this special play or event and we're charging tickets. And I, I just, as the kind of community that I feel called to be a part of is the kind of community that has a theology of uh, this place is funded um, through the offerings of its people and the provision of God. And so what God and the people offer is what we have to do ministry out of. And what's beyond that is, is beyond that. And because I think, um, you know, looking at, again, like, I think the we have to continue, like the temptation is to continue to look back to the 50s and 60s and be like, oh, those were the good old days and we got to get back to there and we had everything we needed. And I mean, that's just a whole different conversation about what looked good to some people at that time and what was broken that was invisible and hidden to a lot of people who were my ancestors. But but even putting all of that aside, you know, the the era of the church that we ought to look back to as normative and ideal for us ought to be the early church. It ought to be the church before there was a building, before there were, you know, any of those institutional realities and all of those things. I mean, I think I am not, I feel like sometimes I have a reputation for being anti-institutional and I'm I lead a church. Like I believe in institutions. I am feel called by God to create one, but I think the the values of the gospel can't be compromised to secure the 
future or the ongoing reality of the institution. Like the institution exists to share the gospel. And so if we can't do that in a way that aligns with gospel values, then there's no point in us anyway. And so I think um, like at the Grove, we have a, I mean, a pretty clear um, absolute that everything that we do as a community, it has to be free um, to everyone. And then we can, you know, you can pass a plate. Um, well, and I was asking myself why, if, if they're expecting such huge crowds, just take up an offering. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, t- and the reason that I think it's so important is, look, what do we exist to do? We exist to form people, and we exist to form them as citizens of an alternative kingdom. And the kingdom we live in right now is a capitalist, consumer, transactional culture, right? Like, you get what you pay for. You are owed what you pay for. You um, you are worth your purchasing power. And that is so deeply deeply entrenched in us that we cannot imagine another way of surviving. But the truth is in the kingdom of God, it is not transactional. You do not get what you pay for. And, you know, we believe in a God who the the goodness and provision comes from God, not from us. And so I just think the place we have to practice it has got to be in our faith communities, right? Like what it's hard, I, I will admit, like, to say, to, to grow up in this culture or come of age in this culture and think like, okay, how am I going to, in my, in my business or in, when I think about providing for my children, I just need to live in the world that is, and, you know, budget according to what I have and spent, I mean, that makes sense to me, but the place you're going to learn that the way of Jesus is fruitful and gives life and the way place that you're going to learn that God provides is got to be in your spiritual community, right? Like you got to learn it there and then you can start experimenting it with, with it in the other places in your life. But if even your spiritual community is saying, look, we are going to accept the people who can pay and we're going to, and it's just fair. Like the people who can pay get to come in and the people who can't pay, that's the fairest thing. Then, then there's nothing different about the gathered Christian community than the gathered like gymnastics community, right? I mean, so we have to be different. And I, like, I remember just being deeply unsettled last year. My oldest daughter, um, we ha- was dancing. She had she had joined a little different dance company than she used to be in, like post pandemic. One that was local instead of driving forty five minutes across town, and and so she went from being one of the only white kids in a black dance company to a white evangelical dance company. Now, both of these dance companies were Christian dance companies. Um, and, but it was so interesting to me. Um, like we were at the concert at the end of the year, which we bought tickets for, which we bought tickets at the other one too. Like that, you know, but the founder of the community was, I mean, was preaching, which I mean, that's fine. And, but she was preaching and there was communion and she was preaching about like, oh, it's a welcome table and everyone is welcome here and everyone can come here and everyone. I'm like, literally the only people in this room are people who could purchase tickets and are people who could enroll their kids in this dance studio. And it's not that the people in this room are not welcome in the kingdom, but it's just really important that we don't sit up there and act like, oh, this is what the table of God is like because it's not <laughs> like we have put up barriers, maybe not even intentionally, maybe we weren't even conscious of it, but we have structured this whole experience in such a way that only certain people are going to cross through the threshold. And then we have proclaimed, oh, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And I'm like, it is not, it is not. And I think, again, I'm not really, I don't expect a Christian dance company to exist by taking up an offering, right? Like that is a, that is a business and it should be ethical and it should have integrity, but it can, you know, it's a business, but I expect the church to at least try to organize itself according to the economy of God. And I will say in terms of this cathedral, like they had a policy, people cried out, 
they listened to what people said, and they adjusted their policy in a way that I think is absolutely in line with the values of the economy of God to say, hey, anyone is welcome. Anyone can get these tickets. This is the gift that would help us. That I think is beautiful. And that's, I think, kind of the point is to say, I think there is a way (laughs) to live out these practices, but I don't think it will always be what quote, common sense, for, you know, what we go like, oh, we have to do it like this. I think the the thing that first pops into our mind is probably going to be more likely formed by the culture than by the kingdom. And so we need people who will stand up and be like, hey, what in the world? How are you selling the gospel? Even though I think some of those comments did not, weren't spoken um, with grace. Great. Right. Um, but I just honor the leaders of that community who, even though they probably very much felt, I mean, they were attacked and felt disparaged, but they still listened for revelation and truth. And I think the goodness of God, you know, was manifested in that. And I think to have a larger conversation about what does it mean to be a community of faith in the real world that is right now, But how how do we make sure that when we are making, quote, practical decisions, that practical doesn't become a place where we take all of our Jesus values and all of our Jesus teachings and put them on a shelf and go like, okay, well, that's spiritual, but now we have to be practical. And I think, you know, I'm not mad at all that sometimes our first instincts are not correct. Like, I think that's what growth looks like. But I think that is just sort of a microcosm of yeah, the first instance was like, okay, we got to solve this problem. Sell tickets. They're cheap. No problem. Let's just do it. And then the reality is, but that's not, that's not what it looks like when Isaiah says, come you who have no money, come and eat your fill. Like if we believe this, like it's not a performance. It's not imaginary. We believe this. And so we have to try to live it. And if we fail, at least we've tried to live it. But if we don't even try, then all of it is pretense, right? And there have to be worse things for us than failing. And there have to be worse things for us than dying, either as individuals or as an institution. All of our institutions are going to die, every single one of them. And so what we have to think about is how do we live and die incarnating the values of Jesus instead of like finding complicated theological reasons to set them aside to prolong our life or our power. Yeah, a moment ago you said um, something about even unintentionally we set up barriers uh, to keep people out and uh, that, that keep people out. And immediately I thought of the words from Um, Luke chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So uh, again, I mean, you were talking about the values of Jesus. He says very clearly here, don't just welcome everybody in. No, you specifically invite these people. Go after these people, even though they cannot repay you. Go after those people. Because what we're trying to say is the ways that we can be paid in this culture do not satisfy, right? Like wealth is a trap. That's good. And so what we are after is eternal worth eternal riches and that that's not like an idea that's an actual fact like Jesus is saying it's like Jesus who is the wisdom of God is saying this is the way of life this isn't do this now and you'll be rewarded later think do this now and you will become rich in God and I think a lot of us like we're not after being rich in God and I, I mean I'm including myself right like I think to really say i I understand that right now I want God so that I can get all things. And what I want, what I know that I need to repent and grow through is to say, I need to 
be to repent and be transformed and find the new life to say, no, God is all things. And I think to continually, and this is a teaching from like the, the like liberation theology and like, um, intersectionality is to say when you have a community and you, if, if you want your community to truly be a place of abundant joy for everyone, then when you think about how do we design our life together, you have to center the people with the least power, the least wealth, and the least access in the world. Because if you create something that is accessible to those people, then you have made it accessible to all people, right? So like if the Grove is a place where no matter how much money you have, you can be a part, play a meaningful role in this community, and you can participate in everything that the community does. If if that's true, it's not that then we're picking those people over other people. We're saying that that means everyone can be here because we have we've designed it so that no one will be left out. And I do think, like, if you want a place, I mean, we just this is how our churches become country clubs. Because we say like, well, worship costs this and the youth group costs this and, you know, Bible school costs this and this is what we need to charge people so that we can, I mean, I just think like, look, our communities ought to be dependent, radically dependent and vulnerable to the goodness of God. And I do believe that God, God's wealth is in this world and God has entrusted every resource that we need to God's people and I see how God provides through through people, um, and yeah. So I I just um, I, but I, I I was really grateful just to watch that whole thing play out, yeah. and it really now, deeply. You do know that some people are saying it was all a setup to get us talking about the National Cathedral. Have you heard that no, perspective? I heard that. So yeah, some some are saying. Hey, this whole controversy was um, again just a setup so that it would get the nation's attention and draw attention to the cathedral. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I, mean, uh, I have heard that. I have a hard time believing. I mean, that's that's an awe. Yeah, I you, just you were about to say I have a hard time believing Episcopalians are that savvy. No, I was not going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say if if that's true. If the if the leaders of that community said, I'm gonna set it up so that everyone can call me a money grubbing, selfish antichrist to mm. get the I mean, like that would be a pretty selfless, I would say the Lord doesn't require you to be publicly flagellated, flagellated, flogged, flogged in order to lift up the cross. Like I, I just think no, actually one thing that I think is helpful in this, and there were some things I read that were talking about it is like, hey, can we talk about, like, talk about our values without demonizing each other, right? And so instead of saying, hey, you jerks, you're only in it for the money, how wealthy, you know, if we could just say, hey, wh- what does it mean that people who don't have $7 couldn't come to worship, right? And can we engage in the conversation I mean, I think that love gives the benefit of the doubt. So it doesn't not raise the question, but it would say, is there another way we can do this? Because I believe that you want this to be accessible to everyone, right? And I think, you know, initially everyone was like, how greedy they're selling tickets. And then they're saying like, no, no, no. We started selling tickets because we didn't want this to only be accessible to people who could stand in line for 24 hours in the rain before coming into worship. Like we didn't think that that was a very loving way for our neighbors and to say like, Oh, well that does make sense. Like it does make sense that. And so I think to give the, the servant leaders of that community the the benefit of the doubt and say, Hey, I think they're probably trying to do the best that they can and we need one another's wisdom and we need one another's perspective. And there are a lot of faith communities in the country um, where, you know, this is my big fear is that church is kind of largely becoming a middle class, upper middle class, wealthy, like cultural phenomenon because people who are have less access to material resources, A, don't have 
jobs that allow them to make a regular commitment to worship once a week and B, don't have the ability to pool their resources in such a way to maintain a local church. And so, you know, people, wealthy people would be able to have the gift of being in community and having those relationships, having a building to gather in, having the ability to pool their resources and hire a youth minister to work with their youth and, and people with less access, like they can have cable TV and they can watch some preacher on a stage, but they don't get to gather in Christian community and pray together and share life together because they don't, they are impoverished both monetarily and, and time impoverished. And so I think, um, to say, but I can imagine that for a lot of people, you're like, Oh, it's $7. That's not a big deal. That's like a latte. Everybody who wants to come can come and go like, actually that is not, you know, if I have a family of you know, seven, that that's a lot of money that's for some people mm-hmm. and, and not to, you know, understand that that's, that's true. It might be true for you, but it is true for some people. And it takes work to live out your values. Right. At some point, as you try to walk out your values, you will misstep. Right. And to be able to say, I'm not surprised that I get it wrong. I'm not surprised that some of the ways I get it wrong are harmful to myself and other. Like, I'm not surprised about that, but I'm also not overwhelmed with existential despair. I don't have to go in like attack defense mode. I can just be like, oh, I already knew I was a, a, a limited person. I already knew, I mean, like maybe there was an element of, of greed or fear or anxiety that was, you know, that was behind that plan. And to be able to say like, oh, this is the world I live with. It makes sense that sometimes I get caught up in it and sometimes I need well, revelation. And that was also part of the thinking behind the civil rights movement once again, right? It's America, you have these national documents, you have these values, and yet you're not living them out. Let's live them out in a way that works for everyone. And I think part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be able to look at what is largely assume agreed upon in the culture as normal okay and inevitable and inevitable and to be able to look at it through the eyes of christ and just wonder like is there another way and to do that wondering without demonizing people who don't yet see like jesus was not mad at the people that he came to give spiritual sight to and ultimately like that's what we're saying is over and over again jesus keeps opening our eyes and we are grateful for that. And we don't turn around and take the gracious truth that we've been given and form it into a spiritual club to bash other people on the heads. Like I, anything that I know, I know not because I discovered it or figured it out. I know because God was gracious to reveal it to me and God didn't give me a gift so that I could then lord it over other people. Yeah, I think you're really just getting to the heart of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is a student, a learner, someone who is in training. Therefore, you know, it's it's step by step, principle by principle. You get it right sometimes, you get it wrong sometimes, but always you're asking, how? What, what is the next thing? What's the next thing I need to learn? Not just in my head, but in, in actual living out. And this is part of, I think, really sitting with the reality that Peter is the rock upon which the Lord built the church. And I think, you know, Peter was brilliant and deeply flawed. And, and to his credit, Peter never claimed omnipotence in any of the biblical record, right? Which is so interesting then to see how the tradition has sort of played with the throne of St. Peter and the keys of St. Peter and all this stuff. Because I think the, the point, the life-giving revelation of Jesus picking Peter as opposed to sort of the mysterious beloved disciple in the Gospel of John who appears to have never done anything wrong to pick Peter and say like, no, 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 wrong, cracked, hard-headed, sometimes willfully stupid people are worthy of redemption and grace is both sufficient, like, like God chooses unworthy people to be filled with the worthiness of God. And, and once we see that, it doesn't mean we stop being unworthy. Like it's just that both, both andness. So anyway, well, that's probably enough from us for today, right? You're going to, um, you need to go pick up your kid. I should do that. You should do yeah. that. So thank you all so much for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, Derida Presbyterian, you can go to the website, which is www.deridachurch.com. Yes. Okay. Thank you. 
and you could worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sundays. And you could also check out messages uh, at their uh, podcast, which is the Derida Church podcast on the Podbean website, or you could go to their YouTube channel. Look for the icon of the um, stained glass window with a dove. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to that website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You could go to the podcast or the YouTube channel for messages. Um, look for The Green Tree with Roots, The Grove Church podcast Um Anywhere. You can get it anywhere or YouTube. Um, or you can join us on the live stream, please, God, at uh, at 10. You can join at Yolando's at 11. That's something we should talk about at some point. Oh, live streaming. Is, is, it, it? Is, it, is it worth it? Yeah, that's, is that's it the next. It? That's okay. another day. You can chime in. And uh, you can worship with us at 10 o'clock. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week.